life experience teaches us that good things often require a level of sacrifice and suffering. For instance, if you want to be healthy and fit, it often requires that you sacrifice what you want to eat and put your body through a level of suffering called exercise. The same is true for a degree. If you want a high school diploma, a college degree, a a master's degree, there's a level of sacrifice and mental suffering that one undergoes to attain that degree or diploma. The same is true for relationships. There's a level of sacrifice and suffering that we must undergo to have a good relationship with another person. We get this. In each of these cases, it's important for us to have a picture in our mind of the end goal and why it's worth it. For if we forget that end goal, what we're pursuing, then we're inevitably going to fail to endure the suffering and sacrifice required to get there. As we return to our series in Mark, Mark chapter 9 this morning, Jesus has just given those who would be his disciples the end picture of following him. If you follow Jesus, you will find true life, eternal life, a life that would end with glory when Jesus returns in power. However, if they were going to follow Jesus and share in that glory with him at the end, they needed to be willing to suffer now, to suffer greatly, to pick up their cross and get behind Jesus. And they needed to be willing to sacrifice even their own self-autonomy for the sake of Christ. This is what Christ's disciples are called to endure, and they do so joyfully, because this is the only path that leads to true joy, eternal life. This end goal, this picture of the future, when Jesus returns in glory and power, is what drives Christians through their present suffering and sacrifice. This brings us to our text today where we left off last time in chapter 9, verse 1. And we'll pick up with Jesus continuing to address the disciples and the crowd surrounding him. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. And he was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that as we look at your truth revealed to us, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. May we see Jesus Christ as glorious as he truly is and follow hard after him and understand that the mission of Jesus has been given to us. May we walk faithfully in the footsteps of Christ as, as followers of you. Give us this grace, even as we see your word now. Convict us, lead us, help us to see. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we return to this text, we find Jesus addressing the crowd with his disciples. He's just told them, if anyone wants to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and get behind me. Follow me. And he told them that it's going to be worth it. For Jesus will return in the glory of his father with the holy angels. They can count on it. They can be sure of it. And in fact, there are some standing in this crowd right now who will not even taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. How does that strike you? There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power? What does this mean? As we think about the crowd and the disciples surrounding Jesus, we know that they all experienced death. But Jesus says, some of you here will see the kingdom of God come in power before dying or tasting death at all. You can be sure of it. So whatever it is that they were to witness, some of these people, would occur before they died. But this leads to a difficulty what did Jesus mean by seeing the kingdom of God come in power? As we think of the kingdom of God in that day, the majority of the Jews no doubt thought of a physical, literal kingdom and probably thought Jesus was saying, you can be sure that you're going to see a physical kingdom of God here on earth come in power and you'll see it in your lifetime. That's maybe what they thought. But there's a problem with this, right? because we know that this didn't happen in their lifetime, nor ours today. We don't have Jesus physically in person ruling on earth yet. So this brings us back to the question, what did Jesus mean by seeing the kingdom of God come in power before dying? What did he mean? And while there are many different ideas by different commentators, I think in part or in whole, what Jesus is referring to is the event that directly follows this. That is his transfiguration. We see Jesus in the transfiguration as the king who is at the center of the kingdom of God come in glory and in power on top of the mountain. And I think this is what he is referring to for at least a few reasons. For one, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the transfiguration follow right after Jesus says that they will see the kingdom of God come in power. You can be sure of it. 
And I think each author wants us to connect it to the transfiguration to follow, his glorious transfiguration. But secondly, when we evaluate the immediate context, just going one verse back to chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus has just said that the Son of Man will come with the glory of his Father. This is going to happen. And the proof? Some standing here will see a glimpse of that reality, the kingdom of God coming with power. I think, once again, that's why he's referring to the transfiguration. But last, I think he's referring to this because Mark makes sure to tell us in verse 2 that six days, six days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him up the mountain, and he was transfigured before them. It's not by accident that Mark includes this crucial detail for us. He doesn't just say six days for the sake of saying six days. He wants us to know this happened just six days later. He intends for us to connect with what Jesus just said as a most certain reality. It's happening six days later. Some would see the kingdom of God come in power. And that's what we're about to witness as we continue reading. So as we pick up in verse 2, we read that Jesus takes three of his 12 disciples up the mountain to be alone. And it's these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were closest to Jesus, who were to witness something spectacular, something mind-blowing. But they weren't to witness this event just for the sake of it being great and awesome. But they were to see it so that they might come to know Jesus more fully and completely. So what is it that they see? As we've been talking about, they see Jesus transfigured before him. That is, we see him greatly changed in appearance before his disciples. We're told that his clothes become dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And the point being that there is no natural explanation for the change in appearance. There is no person in this world that could make his clothes the brilliant white that it was. It was completely and utterly otherworldly, alien-like. Jesus was shining like the sun. But then something else amazing happens in the midst of this. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Some of the greatest prophets of old just appear, and they start talking with Jesus. What a scene. Now, now if you're like me, with a, with a curious mind, no doubt you have more than a few questions running through your mind at this point. Like, for one, a silly question maybe, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? You know, we're not told. Maybe Jesus used their name or something, or God just revealed it to them. We're not told. Or what are they talking about? What is Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about? I mean, I would love to eavesdrop on that conversation to to see what these great prophets of old are talking with Jesus about. And Luke gives us some details about what they talk about. They're talking about Jesus' departure. But Mark doesn't care to elucidate. He doesn't care to tell us because he doesn't want our focus to be there. In fact, he just wants us to simply know that they're there. They're there talking with Jesus. So in the middle of this glorious event, this transfiguration, Peter 
feels compelled to speak. And he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's, let's set up three shelters, you know, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Mark adds a word of explanation of why he says this. Because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. We're given the impression that, that Peter is just overwhelmed by the sense of occasion. He is at a loss of words. He's terrified. He's awestruck. But as he's taking it all in, he just, he just feels the need to do something, to say something. And so he addresses Jesus and he says, Rabbi, let's build shelters. Why did he offer to build shelters other than being terrified? No doubt he thought Moses and Elijah were here to stay. They're here for a long term, so let's set up shelters. And, and perhaps Peter thought, hey, this is the beginning of the kingdom of God here on earth. It's got to be. Moses and Elijah are here. After all, isn't that what just Jesus predicted just a few verses ago? At any rate, no matter what's going through Peter's mind, other than fear and awe, there's a cloud that appears and overshadows them. And it's from this cloud that we hear a voice saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Well, Peter is trying to figure out what to do in the excitement of everything. There is a voice from heaven that helps give him some direction. Peter, look, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Know that this rabbi is far more than just a teacher. This is my beloved son. And so you must listen. Don't talk. Listen to him. Know who he is. And right after this miraculous event, suddenly everyone disappears. No Elijah, no Moses, just Jesus. The one they were to fix their eyes upon and listen to. Now, perhaps you've noticed this, but this is the second time we have a voice coming down from heaven, affirming that Jesus is God's beloved son. The first time was back in Mark 1 verse 11, when Jesus was baptized and a voice comes down from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. However, here, this voice isn't addressing Jesus. It's addressing the disciples. And it says, you, and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So as we step back and we look at this first scene as a whole, how are we supposed to respond to such a monumental moment in scripture? First, I think that just as Peter, James, and John were challenged to slow down, and realize that this Jesus is far more than just a mere rabbi. So we are challenged to see afresh Christ's true identity. Because sometimes we overlook or we trivialize or we treat as less who Jesus is. As sinners, we often fail to value Jesus as fully and completely as we should. And this is evidenced as we neglect our relationship to him, as we fail to read his word and communicate with him in prayer. As sinners, we often fail to treasure Jesus as God's beloved son. 
but we're strongly reminded here that Jesus is far more valuable, far more precious than we often give him credit. For Jesus is more than just a good teacher, and he's far greater than Moses and Elijah, who were the great prophets of old. Jesus is God's beloved, treasured son. God the Father loves the Son with a perfect and pure love that we can only begin to understand here on earth. And just as you parents love your son and your daughter, and and just as you son or daughter love your parents, so God the Father loves the Son in a profoundly deeper and purer way than we could ever imagine because they are without sin. He is without sin. And so this beloved son of God, perfectly loved, would be sacrificed and killed in our place. So value Christ, treasure him as the father does. Recognize Jesus' infinite worth and don't take him for granted. But second, as we respond, we are challenged to listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And if we truly value Christ as we should, we will listen to him. Jesus is God's beloved son and the one testified to by Moses and Elijah, which is perhaps why they are in this picture at this moment. By having Moses there, we are encouraged to think back on Moses's past life and make some connections. Just as we read in our scripture reading, Moses's face shines brilliantly after encountering God and the people were terrified. So we see Jesus here shining brilliantly like the sun and the disciples being terrified. But unlike Moses, who received this brilliant light from being in the presence of God, we see Jesus giving this light out of in himself. Jesus is the light. But more than this, as we contemplate Moses' life, we think about the prediction made by him in Deuteronomy 18.15. Here we have Moses predicting, near the end of his life, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own brothers. And then he says this, you must listen to him. Catch those words there in Deuteronomy 18.15. You must listen to this prophet that God will raise up. Now, what just happened here on the mountain? We hear God, the Father, speak and say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so for those of us who have ears to hear and eyes to see, we are to hear and see that Jesus is the promised prophet, the promised Messiah, the promised Savior of old. And we must listen to him. So you might be saying, okay, you know, I'll, I'll listen to him, but what exactly am I supposed to, you know, listen to his instruction and teaching? Yes, of course, absolutely. But more specifically to what Jesus has been saying all along about his mission in Mark, specifically Mark 8, verse 31. The disciples of Christ are to listen and understand the necessity of Jesus suffering many things being rejected and dying and then being raised to life. They are to understand this mission and accept it. And as we know, the disciples of Christ had a hard time listening to this message. 
We see even Peter, the spokesman of the disciples, trying to rebuke Jesus. He's not listening. He's trying to instruct him instead. But they must come to realize and grasp what Jesus has been saying. That suffering must occur to Jesus before glory. But rest assured, that glory is coming afterwards in the resurrection. And these privileged three get to see a glimpse of it here on this mountain. Just as it's extremely important for the disciples of Jesus to understand this, so it is for us here today this morning. And so for us this morning that claim to be followers of Christ, we must understand the same reality. We must Listen, we must open up our eyes and ears to the message of Jesus and take seriously what he has just said. The path to glory and true life is one that is often filled with suffering, rejection, and death as we follow in the footsteps of Christ. But it's worth it. It's worth it because one day Jesus will return in glory and power even as we get a glimpse of this certain reality in the future. So let this vision, this this picture of that glory to come, compel us and drive us forward, even in our present sufferings, even as we follow in the footsteps of Christ, even as the disciples will later reflect on the transfiguration and allow it to drive them forward in future ministry. As we continue forward to the next scene, we find Jesus and the disciples now descending the mountain after this glorious transfiguration. And as they do, Jesus orders the three to tell no one what they had seen until he is raised from the dead. That is until after he suffers, is rejected and killed and then is resurrected. Don't tell anyone until that happens. Why does he say this? Jesus doesn't want his disciples to confuse the mission at hand. The full glory of the kingdom of God on earth isn't for this present moment. It's first the road of suffering and sacrifice and rejection that Jesus must take before that glory comes later. So the disciples are ordered to keep what they just witnessed secret until he is resurrected, lest they confuse the true mission of Jesus at this moment. The disciples obey, but verse 10 tells us that they still don't quite get what Jesus is speaking about. What is this rising from the dead that Jesus is talking about? We're given the impression that the disciples are still not clearly seeing or hearing yet. They don't quite get why Jesus has to die and rise again. It goes against everything they were taught about the Messiah. So as they continue down the mountain, the three disciples are are probably racking their brains about trying to piece literally everything they just saw occur and are trying to figure out why is it that Jesus must die and rise again? And, And while they're thinking about all of this, all of this intake, there's a question that comes across their mind. And the question is in reference to Elijah. Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? 
the Jews believed, along with the scribes of the day, that Elijah must first return as the forerunner to the Messiah. They believed that Elijah would turn the hearts of men back to God in preparation for the Messiah. And this prophecy is found at the very end of your Old Testament, chapter, uh, chapter 4 of Malachi, verse 5. So the disciples ask this question. And their thinking is probably something like this. Jesus, why do you have to suffer and die and then rise again when Elijah will first come and prepare the way? If Elijah does prepare the way and the hearts of men turn back to God, then you won't be rejected, right? You don't have to die. That's probably the the line of thinking the disciples have at this point as they try to wrap their minds around everything they just saw. So as they pose this question to Jesus, he responds by saying, yes, yes, you're right. You nailed it. Elijah does come first and restore all things. But then he doesn't continue down that line of thinking. But then he inserts a question of his own. But why then is it written that the son of man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come And they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Now, it's easy to lose track here if we're not paying close attention. But basically, what Jesus is saying here is that Elijah does come first and he restores all things. He prepares the way. But this doesn't neglect the fact that the Messiah must still die and be rejected. It doesn't neglect that fact at all. Oh, and by the way, Elijah already came and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. That's the, that's the thrust of what Jesus is saying here. So did you catch that? Did you catch what Jesus is saying? Jesus just said, Elijah already came. He already came and he was already rejected. They did whatever they wanted to him. Now, maybe you're wondering, like the disciples, did I, did I miss something in chapters 1 through 8 of Mark? Where is this Elijah being here in the text? I don't really see Elijah referenced. And Mark doesn't spell it out for us like the parallel account of, of Matthew does. But in the parallel account in Matthew, we're told plainly that Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Mark doesn't do this for us. He, he doesn't make it easy. He wants us to already know that Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist based on the details that he's given about him up to this point. And if we've been paying careful attention throughout Mark, we're supposed to draw this conclusion for ourselves. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, what details did Mark give us that should lead us to the conclusion that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah? What details were supposed to lead us to that conclusion? Well, as we go back to Mark chapter 1, we realize that John the Baptist dressed the exact same way as Elijah, with camel hair garments and a leather belt in chapter 1. The only other person who dressed this way was Elijah, and you can find that in 2 Kings 1 verse 8. They're wearing the exact same type of clothing. But second, Mark was careful to include that John did turn the hearts of many back to God, just as was prophesied. Many flocked to him in the wilderness. It was stunning. 
In fact, that's exactly how Mark begins the gospel. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then we see many turning back to God, repenting of their sins. And third, we see John the Baptist rebuking King Herod boldly. And we hear echoes and allusions of Elijah rebuking powerful kings boldly. And just as Elijah found himself in trouble with powerful, evil queens, so we see the same occur with John. But unlike Elijah, John's fate was stark. His life was ended in a gruesome way by King Herod. We remember that he is beheaded at an immoral party by the scheme of Herodias. And so coming back to verses 12 and 13 here of Mark 9, Jesus is saying, if this was the fate of the promised Elijah, so I will suffer an equally horrible fate that I've been speaking of. It's inevitable, just as it was written in the scriptures. In other words, don't let what you just saw in the transfiguration lead you to believe that I don't need to suffer and die. This is a hard pill to swallow. And it's something that disciples have been resistant to hearing. They're looking for every way out. But Jesus was determined to go through suffering and offer himself as a sacrifice to make possible our salvation. And as believers today, we must take Jesus' sobering message to heart as his disciples. We remember that just as John the Baptist was rejected and executed for spreading the message of the Messiah, so Jesus, the beloved Son of God, would be executed too. He would be killed and murdered so that we might come to know true life and salvation. Now perhaps you've never heard this truth before or in such a way. But if this is you, know, know again that Jesus died willingly for you and for me. He suffered great things and he died in our place on a cross for all of the offenses that we committed against God. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected in a glorious way on the third day, proving that our debt was truly canceled and we were set free. And so if you haven't, ever come to trust Christ as your savior, I encourage you as the scriptures to do exactly that. And if you have any questions about the gospel, speak, talk with us, and we'll be happy to explain more the beauties and glories of Jesus Christ. For those of us here this morning who have heard the truth of the gospel and have accepted it, I wonder if we've truly counted the cost of being Jesus' disciples? Are we truly willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and those who have gone before us for the sake of gospel of the gospel in Jesus Christ? Disciples struggled to grasp what Jesus would go through because it had direct implications for them. If the Messiah was going to the cross and was going to be rejected and die, what did that mean for them? It meant that they would likely experience the same fate. And so I wonder, for all of us here this morning, are we prepared? Are we prepared to endure the same as Christ's disciples? To walk a life of suffering, perhaps rejection, perhaps even death for the sake of Christ? 
And while this is a difficult thing to determine, one question that may help reveal whether or not we are already walking this path is whether or not we are seeking out people who do not know the risen Christ. Are we seeking to reach people with the gospel around us? Our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, our family. Are we reaching out to people in love, seeing them as image bearers of God that are valuable to him? Are we reaching out with the message that saves? Or are we instead keeping ourselves away from those relationships, keeping ourselves at arm's length? Because those types of relationships are uncomfortable and they bring an unwanted amount of risk in suffering, rejection, and sacrifice. The same question can be asked of our church as a whole. Are we willing to follow in the footsteps of Christ by reaching out just as he reached down to us? Are we willing to make bold moves as a church to reach the people here in Burnsville and surrounding our community? Or are we instead going to avoid difficult decisions because it might bring an uncomfortable amount of risk and suffering, sacrifice, and rejection? In these difficult moments, we must, we must remember together as the church what Christ endured for us. He was determined to fulfill the Father's plan and to go to the cross on our behalf. He was determined to face suffering and be sacrificed for us if it meant that many might be saved. And by God's grace, we stand here today as children of God because Jesus suffered and was rejected for us. It is his sacrifice that made it possible for us to be redeemed. So Crystal Lake Baptist Church, are we willing to endure the same? Are we willing to reach out even if it invites suffering, sacrifice, and pain? Though difficult, may we be the kind of church that follows in the footsteps of our Savior. For we know the glory to come, even as we've just seen a glimpse of it here on this mountain. So may we await that day eagerly when Christ will return in power and glory. May we be found sacrificing, enduring, suffering for the name of Christ until that day.